Throughout history, visual art has taken on many roles beyond the aesthetic. It serves as a form of resistance, a catalyst for change, a rallying cry, a wake-up call, a source of hope. The old cliché, a picture is worth a thousand words, is only trite because it's true. Art appeals on a universal basis. It's accessible to individuals of all educational backgrounds, ages, and perspectives. It has the power to amplify and disseminate the voices that often go underrepresented in other mediums of communication. Today, you'll hear from two individuals working at the nexus of art, activism, education, and climate resilience. Hello, my name is R. Gregory Christie. Most people call me Greg. I'm an award-winning children's book illustrator of more than 70 books. And I've always had a passion for working with young people to do, um, just to find what's important in themselves and, and to, to really use art and literacy in the form of programs to get people excited about reading and also just working in the community and, and um, building the next generation of something better. I, I, Pretty much grew up in New Jersey and went to art school in New York and uh, first started doing record covers, did a lot of jazz album covers, and now I do strictly children's books and uh, I love it. Excellent. Thank you. I just learned some new things. <laughs> That's wonderful. Surprises, you know. Ah, little Easter eggs, we call them in an exhibition. Uh, uh, my name is Miranda Massey. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the director of the Climate Museum, um, which mobilizes the power and the pleasure of art and of cultural programming to give people a sense of their own ability to take meaningful action on the climate crisis and on climate justice. Um, and we have a new exhibition up with Greg's spectacular 45-foot climate justice mural grounding the whole thing um, and have been presenting public programming for about five years. Following, following Greg's lead, I'll say just a couple sentences about my own biography. I was a civil rights impact litigator, a racial justice trial lawyer before embarking on this work of creating the Climate Museum. Um, and so, and I grew up in a family of artists and was a person completely unpossessed of artistic talent myself. Um, so I've always had a very profound appreciation for the power of art and visual culture and wanted one of the things that was attractive about the idea of starting the Climate Museum, though I found my work as a civil rights lawyer super rewarding, was the idea of being able to engage with that part of myself where um, I wasn't ever going to be an artist, but as a person who cared about art and could elevate its importance for social justice purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, my first question is for you, Miranda. You mentioned that your background was in civil rights and social justice law. What inspired you to kind of expand into the realm of climate justice work? And how did your experiences with racial justice and marginalized communities kind of inform your approach to tackling climate change? Sorry, that was kind of a lot there. We can start with the first no, one. Yeah. No, that's a great question. It's a great question. I gradually came to see the environment that we occupy as the biggest challenge 
uh, to overcome for, for racial justice and for social class justice as well. If you can't thrive as an organism in your environment on an equal basis, then all the other issues that I was working on and which remain vitally important, principally racial justice in education, that was my key focus, but all of it becomes at best much harder to enforce and at worst it just falls away. So if you're drinking water that's contaminated with lead or breathing air that's poisoning your body, all of the stressors that accumulate in the lives of vulnerable communities and black and brown and indigenous communities in the United States, the toxic weight of particularly fossil fuel growth and development and expansion, but also just um, uh, the, 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 um, the way that manufacture, that industry ha happens and is cited in our country. I came to see that as a baseline for the achievement of social equality in a way that I hadn't before, perhaps because my dad was an early uh, environmentalist. And so I had a very, very loving relationship with him. I was really lucky in that regard, particularly as a young girl in my generation to have such a great dad. Um, but that was one of the areas I carved out for rebellion. Um, so if he was gonna be all obsessive about recycling, I was going to go a different way and think of environmentalism as being the province of people with a lot of privilege who didn't have more pressing concerns. And now that idea is inconceivable to me because the environment that you live in is so fundamental to your ability to achieve well-being in any other category. Um, so I came to see environmental justice as the place where I wanted to do work. And then from there, it was just obvious the climate crisis is the biggest equality crisis that humanity has ever confronted. It, it exacerbates existing inequalities as, as our, and our show goes into that um, in, in a fair amount of detail. And even, even beyond that, it's built on inequality. So one of the things that's incredible about Greg's work for the show is it, it starts to give people a sense of how this entire system of climate injustice is built on colonialism, transatlantic enslavement, and all of these systems that are, are um, uh, developed over the last 500 years, this really intense hierarchy of social power that's both geopolitical and within the United States, and that's based largely on, on race. So it built on the work that I had done as a, as a civil rights litigator, but also from my current perspective, went deeper and more to root causes of all of that, all of those systems that we're trying to undo and need to undo. Right, yeah, and I, I love kind of what you're saying about how climate change and social inequities are kind of a two-way street because, you know, these historical inequities are at the root of so many um, of the impacts of climate change that we see manifesting today, particularly in historically disadvantaged communities, but we also see um, how climate change is at the root of um, so many inequities that are just kind of budding or coming into the public consciousness today as climate change worsens. So I think that kind of mutual relationship is interesting and I love how your approach is kind of to see all inequities under the umbrella of climate change, which as you said is 
you know, the biggest inequity. Um, I have a question for you, um, Greg, kind of what was the impetus for um, this end of fossil fuels exhibit? You said that your work doesn't um, solely focus on climate change. So what made you, you know, decide to focus on climate change and fossil fuels in particular? Well, there's always empowerment through knowledge. And if you take what I do, I, I tend to teach people about their history through visual images and historical stories in children's books. In most cases, the books I choose to do are not easy books. Um, they're not typical books. What you tend to get in, in a school system, a curriculum might have Dr. King, Rosa Parks, and Harriet Tubman. And these are great historical figures, but there's such a full array. And people get empowered when they hear stories like about Bass Reeves, first US Marshall Color United States, and you get into pre-Oklahoma history and what was called at the time the Indian Territory. So once I see that someone gets a book and how they, even adults, because I actually sell my own books. I don't go beyond just doing them. I actually go out into the public and, and in a way make people see these books. And I think if you're any kind of, I don't take on the term activist easily, but if you are any kind of activist or community worker, you, you're going you're gonna to really get in people's faces. You're going to have to get out there and, sh and open yourself up. So in the, the ability to do a 45 foot mural and in a way get a crash course. I mean, I've heard of uh, climate uh, you know, justice and issues dealing with the climate, but to actually be able to work with people who, who've dedicated a portion of their life to it and for them to take the time to explain the issues, answer questions that I had, it was really uh, empowering for me. And in, in turn, I could actually do visuals that I want people to feel hopeful about. That was the thing that really drew me to the uh, project and to this exhibition. It's not doom and gloom. It actually tells you uh, information and facts. And like I said, you get empowered when you know things. When you don't know, you, you kind of feel lost. But if at least if you know something, that's the first step in going towards a direction to uh, adjust, you know? Yeah. And so the idea that I learned so much doing the uh, project and, and starting the mural and doing sketches and coming up with a concept, I had to pull back on the, uh, uh, you know, let me say reach back and pull out the ability that I have when I do difficult stories. Imagine if you're doing a book about Sojourner Truth, who was a teenager and she already had six children. How do you tell little kids about that? How do you tell a fifth grader about uh, a, a woman not having control of her own body and her environment being controlled and, and what the system was like at that time period? So it's vetted by editors, it's vetted by the author, but I'm in charge of the visuals. And if something is too harsh in the book, in terms of a story, I might soften it up with almost a cartoonish style if it's very uh, playful, I might do a more serious, earthy tone style. So I adjust my style almost like a character actor to do my work. And when this came, you know, across my easel, I, I just took it on as almost as I would if I was doing a children's book. 
and I wanted to get the nuances of the message into the visuals. And I was, it was great because there was already a, a working idea of just what uh, Miranda was speaking about, of, of going into the past and talking about uh, enslavement and, and um, you know, these, these just the different, um, you know, things that are not fair, the un, un, un inequity. So the, the idea is like, what could I use to symbolize that time period? And, and it was great to just pick out symbols that got the message across, but could be somewhat uh, on the line of being family friendly, but, but really direct in the message. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I pulled on based in short, I pulled on what I have to pull on when I do children's books, because you, you know, books are being banned. Right. You know, and there and there's there's all kinds of things that I do. I put my heart and soul into it and they get awards and they get recognized as being distinguished. And then a gatekeeper just says, nope, this is not appropriate. Uh, I don't want my child to know about this. Let's and it goes back to my point of empowerment of, of knowledge. If you don't let people know things, they don't know any better and they're ignorant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting back to in short, like I was saying, in short. I, for the most part, just pulled into what I know as a children's book illustrator to create what I hope would be a powerful image to kind of be the summation of what the show was about. All the little uh, stations that you go to in the exhibition, that's what's on the wall in a summation of, of, a, of a timeline kind of period of, of, uh, of imagery. It's, it's clear how much thought you put into the way that you present these, you know, often tough stories and how the visuals that you're presenting to your audience can really shape their perception of the story that you're trying to tell. And that's a lot of power, you know, when you, when you really think about it. And just quickly, I'm kind of wondering, um, why is art specifically your medium of choice to communicate these tough stories? Why not, you know, poetry or writing or music? You know, who you see now is not who I was when I was a child. I would not even have been able to articulate any of my ideas or even look anyone in the eye or talk about my work or even feel proud of myself. So there was a progression and a journey. Um, I was very shy as a, a child and I was told often, even by family members, how come you're so quiet? Oh, he's quiet. Like that I was almost like written off. But everyone, everyone uh, that was in school, teachers, uh, friends, people in the neighborhood all would say, you're really a good artist. It made me feel good. It helped me help build my self-esteem to some extent. And um, that's where, you know, it began. It's like, you, you can't ever, you know, no matter how many, uh, uh, you know, coffee table art books you look at or how many times you go to the museum, art in a way is communication. One part of it is communication. And if you don't, if you think of it like this, let's suppose I were to go to another country and I, let's say it was Tibet and I didn't speak the language and I wanted to go uh, to a, uh, you know, I was hungry. I could draw a plate or I could draw a fork. I could draw a knife. I could draw something, a symbol, even if it was just shapes and circles and squares, uh, people would recognize it. It cut it's, it's primal how much people that it's in cave paintings, people communicate through imagery and imagery is very powerful. 
it's it's just wired into us that certain colors and combinations and compositions please our eye and certain compositions and colors they will actually make us feel uneasy as well so you know when you go to art school if you have the chance and you're lucky you actually learn how to use these things to uh, manipulate is a hard word but it does get the point across manipulate people and but you do it in a good way if you choose to you want people to look at something and let it stay with them they'll leave the exhibition they'll leave uh you know a museum and they will just be thinking about an image and what artists do beyond communication we also communicate things that people wish they could say in the way that they're seeing it visually so i would really am a, that appeals to me to be able to have that kind of uh, you know, direction and, and uh, it's, it's in a way it is a power, but you know, that, that kind of sullies the word. I don't take it as like power and, and, and hurting people and manipulating them. So I use it, what I do for children's books. I do it for these uh, generations that are coming. And my hope has always been in the youth. My hope has always been in younger people because in my opinion, Adults tend to get set after 25. They're pretty much set who they are and what they want. And I'm not saying they can't change, but I often find that they manage what they need to change. But someone younger can actually be directed on a path. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I'm living proof. You, proof, you can find something that you're good at, find something that you even think you're good at, and and find the strength to go and try and do it. And if, if, if your calling is to go and, and make people learn how to, uh, you know, pass laws and, 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 and get involved in politics, or, or your, your, your calling is to, to even organize how you do the best signs or, or drawings for signs, or, you know, you're going to protest. It's like everybody has some gift. And it's great if you're younger to be able to tap into it and find it. So that's that's really what drew me to it. It's an opportunity because it's an opportunity to actually make a change. And because I, I personally don't see the world going in the way that I want it to go. And, and not that I dictate how things should be, but I'm long enough to live to know how things were. And I know how people treated each other. So if I can use my art to kind of help people be more empathetic and more empowered, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it sounds like as a young person, art kind of gave you a voice or at least an outlet to find your voice um, in a way that other things didn't. And I mean, you're right. I think maybe um, saying that art gives power is the wrong word, but um, art definitely empowers. I think empowering maybe um, mm -hmm. more on the nail. Um, for Miranda, my question for you is, um, you know, the Climate Museum is unique in its focus on artwork. Um, so does art reveal any kind of intersections between climate change and social justice that other forms of communication may overlook? I believe so. And I believe that that's true in a way that's really exemplified by the incredible work that Greg did for this show. I also think there are powerful things about art as a medium that echo a, a lot of what Greg was, was saying. Um, but first, the joy 
of a world with a safe climate and with justice for all is something it's very hard to convey in words alone. And when a visitor looks at Greg's mural, that's a huge part of what they see. They see the darkness of what we're trying to cast off as a global community. They see the intensity, the ferocity of the struggle that we're in to move toward climate justice and the emotional character of that legacy of exploitation, both ecological and social exploitation, that has an emotional weight to it that's very hard to capture in, um, in, in other media, but in the visual arts with a, a, an artist with the prodigious talents of, of Greg, you can convey the way that that history, which is ongoing, is weighing us all down. You can also convey the nature of the effort that's going to be required to get out from under that and to do the kind of broad systemic transformation that we need to do. And I can say how hard it is and that it's a big job, but that doesn't get it across the way looking at a mural of people engaged in the struggle in, in a, in a, in a metaphorical way can do. And then finally, the joy and liberation, the sense of freedom in the real sense, not the libertarian sense, but the real sense, people freely relating to each other. It's that, that vibrant emotional wellness is something that pictures do better at than words putting it really, really simplistically. And um, the, the right images, the right art can convey all of those emotions, some of which this refers back to something that you were saying earlier, Greg, about some of your books, some of which convey brutally difficult subjects. I mean, absolutely harrowing information. Um, but because it's presented in a way that leads to a place of joy, and because it's presented in a way that calls up our deep communal selves, which is what art, one of the reasons art as a medium is so powerful in general, is less about what information is conveyed. Um, but if information that's really difficult is conveyed in a social setting where you feel your connection to other people, and that's what art does for us as humans, um, it's easier to metabolize and it's just more powerful to start with the emotions. We need the, we need the intellect as well. We need the mind as well as the heart, but most people, most of the time are primarily emotional creatures. And that's a matter of our evolutionary biology and it's makes us who we are. And art is built into that. It's why there are cave paintings on the walls of some of our first homes. It's built into how we experience ourselves as a community and that is a mode of communication that for too long the climate movement didn't pay attention to because it wasn't serious, because it wasn't a bar graph, uh, because it wasn't scientifically precise. And for exactly those reasons, it's incredibly effective at drawing a broad public into this fight for our lives. It's a fight for all of our lives in, in, uh, in the long term. Mm -hmm. And you and Greg both emphasized kind of 
the contrast in this exhibit between um, the darkness and the brutality of of some of this history and some of this even contemporary um, issue um, and the way that that contrasts um, against um, the positivity and the hope. And I think that's really inspiring because something that I deal with on a daily basis as a young person trying to navigate, you know, a uncertain future is um, apathy towards climate change. I encounter people who have given up. I, you know, see other kids who just don't care anymore, frankly, because it seems like, you know, nothing's changing but the climate. So I think this idea of contrast and yin and yang between um, the despair and yet there's still hope for the future um, is part of what makes this exhibit um, so groundbreaking. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, um, along those lines, how does the Climate Museum kind of actively work to amplify underrepresented voices in the climate movement? And, you know, how do you reach a broad audience? We do, that's an incredibly important part of our work. It's built into how we approach it and has become um, an, a greater and greater strength over, over time in my, in my judgment. Always, 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 always improvements to be made. Um, so for example, as of this moment, we have a m much better demographic profile than your average museum uh, in terms of visitors but we, we're always trying to do better. So we have some specific outreach initiatives that we're developing for this show um, and some that we've already had in place for, for quite some time. We do tons of outreach, for example, to Title I schools. We reach out to civil rights and social justice organizations. Um, we tap into a broad network of environmental and climate justice experts, um, and we are just always looking to make sure that not only is the content um not only shaping the content in a way that's trying to make clear why it's pertinent for everybody um and and why how climate is bound up how the climate crisis is bound up with unjust systems and why we have to tackle all of that at once we don't have time not to Really, we have to do, we, we don't have time for small solutions. We have to go for big solutions. Um, so we do a lot of outreach in terms of making the show accessible, not only by virtue of being free, which all of our programming is, um, but more broadly through outreach. And then we present programs that, not just the exhibition, but special programs as well that just look to make connections around different social hierarchies that are bound up with the climate crisis and efforts to understand them better intellectually and to take action on them. We're an openly activist museum um, and our goal in a show like this, in addition to telling the hard truths and presenting a vision of a joyous future, which is a, which is a future of, of racial justice, period. There's no good future that's not a racially just future. Um, we also present programs around climate reparations, for example. Last year, we did a climate and environmental justice 101 presentation. 
Um, we just recently had a high school workshop on world making from colonialism to climate justice. So it's a consistent substantive theme. And then we combine that with outreach um, to uh, and with a, advisors to make sure that we stay as on the right track to be as much to be operating in a way that's consistent with the message that we're conveying about the singular importance of justice in the struggle for a stable climate. Yeah, I think that's so important because all you know, all the outreach that you do is so important because um, we know for a fact that the voices that are least often heard in the climate movement are the same um, individuals who um, face the greatest and most extreme impacts of climate change. So I think that public outreach aspect is um, so crucial to everything you're doing. And not only that, but, you know, museums and cultural institutions play um, such a tremendous role in raising awareness about climate justice and promoting positive change. So just the idea of something like this museum and this exhibit that is open and engaging and accessible to people of all ages and all backgrounds is um, it's just so beautiful and it's a brilliant idea. Um, I do want to kind of pivot to the end of fossil fuel exhibit specifically. Um, so um, maybe Greg, the artist, could you could start by um, just describing for our listeners um, exactly what the end of fossil fuel exhibit um, looks like. Well, I can uh, speak on to about the mural. The uh, murals towards the back. Uh, once you walk in, you're you're, you're really uh, kind of enamored by this open, white-walled space. And there's a few columns, and as you, it's very inviting. You walk in, and you see information as you walk towards the back of the uh, exhibition. And then uh, along the line of the the back wall, there's a skylight, and it kind of illuminates the the mural. And the mural is really like uh, somewhat of a timeline and you see uh, maybe I could describe it as the past, the present and the future. And it's more of an idealistic timeline, um, you know, or metaphorical timeline than anything very specific. Uh, what you see on one side, if you go towards the left of it, it's in black and white, it's monotone and, and you have uh, kind of like industrial barons, people, using the land and altering the land to to for their own gain you can see that their their faces are, are really intent on on what they're creating and what they're creating is somewhat destructive it is destructive it it's it's uh, stacks of pollution with with uh, these two figures that are dressed in maybe about uh, the industrial revolution age and they have chains coming out the stacks. And in the back, you have uh, other tools, you know, Derek's like, you know, spewing oil out the ground. It's just really just trying to uh, show like devastation of the land. But what was important to me was to have a tug of war, but not one that goes horizontally, but one that goes up above. My thinking is, when you think about climate, you sometimes are, are, you know, a foundation of it is temperature. That's one part of it. And a lot of the things that we, we notice as human beings is when we look up, 
when we look up and see things. We have the ground, we see crops, we see animals, but, but a lot is above. And so the chains are actually floating. It's very uh, uh, surrealistic. The chains are floating up into the, uh, off the picture plane of the image. And they're coming back down towards the center, which, which, we, which we could consider the present. And in the center, it's starting to almost like a sunrise. It's going from monochrome and, and, and chromatic and, and black and white into starting to be a bit more uh, vivid colors. But there's also a storm and you see a lightning bolt and you see chains coming down. But there are people who are breaking the chains by pulling them. So there's a tug of war, but instead of it being... Uh, who wins from left to right, it's from who wins from top to bottom and up and down. And there's a lot of metaphors in the actual image, the idea of uh, who's on top, who's on bottom, things coming from above, broken chains of bondage. It's, it's a lot. You look at it and there's little, little nuances or as Miranda says, Easter eggs in it. And what I did was I just painted messages. I painted visual messages for people to feel something. So what you have are uh, these figures pulling uh, chains and the chains are breaking and, and it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's the chains are foreboding and they're, they're rusty looking, but they're being snapped. And there's also nature coming up and, and intertwining with the chains and pulling as well. So you have uh, human figures and nature fighting against something that was done in the past. Then it starts to, kind of like have one fist, which is very symbolic of revolution and, and, and protest. And in one part of the fist, you have chains going in and out the other side of the fist that's clenched are vines. So the chains are starting to turn into something more organic and it leads you into the future. The future is meant to be um, idyllic and, and it's meant to feel like a some type of nirvana or, or peaceful place of balance. And there's lots of nature, there's hummingbirds, there's, there's types of, of, of uh, animals. And, and it really is just, you know, something that shows balance of, of people living with nature, not trying to conquer it, not trying to, to uh, take it for granted, but you actually see that the humans and the people, the figures in it, are a part of nature. It's all in balance. Nature and human beings are living as nature. Yeah, I love how that symbolism of coexistence is kind of a constant theme throughout the the mural. And it sounds like it's such an active viewing experience. You know, the viewer is taken on this journey from the past to the present to the future. And it, you know, um, I unfortunately haven't had a chance yet to see the exhibit in person, but what I'm envisioning is something that, like, you know, every time you look at it, um, your perspective kind of evolves. And like you said, mm -hmm. you see Easter eggs every every time you come back and you see something new. So I just think that's fascinating. Um, and Miranda, maybe um, you can speak just briefly on um, why the museum decided to focus on the origins of the fossil fuel industry, because we've heard a lot about, you know, climate colonialism and um, historically racist housing policies and how all these things interact um, and intersect with climate justice. So um, why this exhibit on fossil fuels specifically? 
Absolutely. Um, and Ariel, if it's okay with you, I, I wanted Greg to ask whether it's as significant to you as it is to me, the way we see people interacting with each other in the future that you envision in your mural. One of the components of it that's so interesting is that up there are very strong human figures in the, let's call it as a shorthand, the past and the present. Um, but they're not really talking, they're doing things together for sure, but they're not relating to each other in mm -hmm. friendship um, and love and in family, apparent family arrangements. And then in the future, there's this sense of people being able to connect with each other more deeply in a more joyous and loving way uh, because they're operating in a context of justice and harmony with nature and all of that. It's very, it's something that really has powerfully struck me every single time I've gone into the show and, and looked at the mural, that connection between the wellness of the planet. And I don't mean this in a loose, uh, a loose way, but that, that allows humans to be more human. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that's really powerfully captured in the, in the mural. Um, so I think Ariel, to your question, if you would ask me six years ago, seven years ago, early on in the development of the climate museum, what's the start point of the climate crisis? I think I've, Nobody asked me this, so we'll never know for sure. But I think I would have said the steam engine and the industrial revolution in uh, great in England at that time, um, the beginning of the mass use of uh, burning of coal and um, com combustion of fossil fuels is where the climate crisis started. The more you learn about it, the more you realize that the industrial revolution in England was not an isolated, was not an isolated development, either in terms of the technology or nationally, it was embedded in the developing a lot earlier, uh, several hundred years ago than it is now, but the developing world system of colonial exploitation and in turn, colonial exploitation and the transatlantic slave system were entirely bound up with each other. So there would not be, there would not have ever been an industrial revolution with those, you know, those pictures that you see, uh, um, then the weaving used to be literally a cottage industry. It's where the phrase comes from. Mostly women would do it at home in their cottages. Um, in the industrial revolution, you have workers, the, the process is industrialized through the use of the steam engine and through the use of coal powered looms and you have um, workers, in this case, women workers, aggregated in a big industrial space. None of that would have happened. And there were advances involved in all of this too. It's not only abuse and exploitation, that things are, they're all very thoroughly mixed together, but without, without colonial plunder of um, countries that are today still not on an equal economic footing because of that history um, and the development by Portugal at first principally of the transatlantic slave system became that we, we quote in the show a contemporary um, who describes transatlantic slavery as the hinge on which all the trade of this great world turns. So 
we think of these things as being separate from each other in the way the way history is taught in our schools if these subjects colonialism and transatlantic slavery are taught at all well which is often in question and increasingly as greg points out a point of contention with extraordinary right-wing attacks on basic human knowledge and history but even when they're taught moderately well the connections among them and the fact that all of this was about the development of a world system that operated as a whole none of these things operated independently is not well enough known and when you wrap your mind around that you realize it doesn't it doesn't make sense to answer the steam engine if somebody asks you when did the climate crisis start it's much earlier than that it's with the first colonialist exploits that then led to the development of transatlantic enslavement um and it it the the industrial revolution is the physical expression of the climate crisis that was being developed by those earlier social processes if that makes sense so you just you simply wouldn't have had the steam engine if you hadn't had it if you hadn't had transatlantic slavery and colonialism and so to make clear to people as it becomes increasingly well known there's a new poll out today showing how fervently adult adults in the u.s support climate justice across a lot of um, different kinds of political distinctions and demographic distinctions that people might find surprising. Like there's, there's a growing understanding that the climate crisis hits vulnerable communities harder and first. There isn't as much of an understanding that that's not, that's not a coincidence or it's not just an inevitable expression of systemic racism. It's more than that. To be very direct about it, racism is built into the making of the climate crisis. So if we're going to undo the climate crisis, we have to address those systems of racial exploitation that went into its creation. And the first step on that, echoing you again here, Greg, is to look at it, to understand it, to see it, to be open to the information and to take it in. Um, and if we understand the root causes of the climate crisis, we'll be positioned to end it and move toward a brighter world. If we pretend that all these things are separate, we can't get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that, um, you know, as an activist for both climate change mitigation and climate justice, I'm always trying to um, get other people to understand is how inextricably linked um, racism and climate change are. And one is not just like, you know, social science versus climate science. Like they, you know, racism um, is baked into the climate crisis today. And, you know, it's like you said, it's no coincidence that the lands and peoples that were exploited in colonialist times are um, facing um, disproportionate um, vulnerability to climate change today. Um, when I was doing some research on this exhibit, I saw this um, term racially defined sacrifice zones. Um, so um, maybe one of you could explain this concept of racially defined sacrifice zones and how the fossil fuel industry kind of contributed to that phenomenon. Greg, do you want to take that? I'm very happy to as well. 
No, I think you should take that to be, I think, better. Yeah. Happy to. Uh, so the extraction of fossil fuels, just getting them out of the ground, and then their combustion, the burning them, both of those activities are incredibly toxic to, to humans and other, and other life in close proximity. There are multitudes of toxic compounds that are released by extracting and combusting fossil fuels. The fossil fuel industry accordingly and the petrochemical industry based on fossil fuels that produces things like fertilizer and plastics and so something other than the gas that that um, goes into an internal combustion engine, uh, but that's still based on fossil fuels. Because these processes are so acutely dangerous to human health. It's a painful thing to say, but it is true and is important to say. The industry situates these activities in communities where they feel people deserve less and or where they think people have less ability to fight back and resist, again, speaking really directly, being poisoned by these activities. So I'll give you an example, and this is an exhibit in the show. There's a, a, a stretch of the lower Mississippi River that's called Cancer Alley by the people who live there. It's a very small part of the territorial US. It's 85 miles long, which maybe seems like a lot. That's very, it's a, the, the, the percentage, um, it's a minuscule, vanishingly small percentage of the land mass of, of the US. 25% of petrochemical production takes place in this one small stretch of land in Louisiana, fully a quarter. And in some of those communities, many of which are majority black, cancer rates for some kinds of cancer tens of times higher than they are um, on average in the US. Depends on the, the kind of cancer in the community, but the numbers are staggering. And there, there's a deep history to this, and I won't go into all the details into that specific sacrifice zone, but it's a, it's a good teaching example for what a sacrifice zone that's racially defined looks like. It's a place where the fossil fuel industry and the petrochemical industry believe that they will be able to operate without massive local opposition. Now, they've been wrong in a lot of cases, and the show highlights the remarkable successes of community-based organizations, climate justice organizations in Cancer Alley and other places in fighting back and achieving wins that at the outset of the fight, you would say are like completely impossible to imagine. But nevertheless, these remarkable fights um, have resulted in a lot of victories but without that, without having sacrifice zones where they can make their product, the fossil fuel industry literally would not exist. And so it can't. So in other words, it's not just a, the racism of the industry isn't just in the way that impacts intensify existing expressions of structural racism across our society. It's not that, it's more operational and concrete and specific than that. 
they think they need to operate in black and brown and indigenous communities because they think that they'll get too much pushback if they try to operate in other places. It's the, the, the descendant of the ex, uh, unthinkable dehumanization that characterized both colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. It's a continuation of the same hum- attitude um, of human hierarchy that's based on lies. There's no basis for it scientifically. It's simply the assertion of social power and desire for profits. Um, so that's what we mean when we talk about the fossil fuel industry being completely reliant on sacrifice zones. They couldn't operate without them. Mm-hmm. So they they actively, and I'm not saying every line industry worker, but the leadership of the fossil fuel industry, the executives, it's a conscious process. They, they, they know where they want to go and it is there, there aren't really words for how morally disgraceful it is as a practice. Mm-hmm. And this concept of lying and deception plays such a, you know, significant role in the exhibit's theme um, and, you know, the deceptive tactics used by the fossil fuel industry to mislead the public and policymakers about their impacts um, on the environment and on marginalized communities, um, those tactics and stories are echoed all across the country. I mean, I remember learning um, just this week about the Flint water crisis in my environmental science class and, um, you know, the sheer degree of denial and lying um, that was used um, by, you know, policymakers um, and government officials to kind of keep the public in the dark, it's just sickening. Um, So, yeah, it's just such a tragic aspect of this whole issue. Um, I have a question for you, Greg. Um, Kind of earlier you were talking about how knowledge is empowering. Um, I'm curious how you hope that your art um, will empower visits to uh, visitors, sorry, not just to, you know, look at the art and absorb it, but to actually take action towards a more sustainable and just future. I just, um, I wanted to work, uh, kind of like in conjunction with the information that they see, you know, so as they read and gain knowledge, they can also see visuals and, and, you know, I, I just hope that some of the imagery locks in with them and, and, um, you know, just as Miranda was saying, there there is a section of of, um, of of not only balance with people living within the environment and and having social interaction, but the main part right now, you know, in the in the the um, center part of the image, where there's people protesting, it's almost as as, as if they're planting seeds, metaphorical seeds, you know, and they're working together. And that's where I think where things are now. Like, I, I hope that people look at those figures in that middle section and see themselves and see, uh, you know, even though it's, it's, uh, it has a whimsical feel to it, but just feel like they're not alone. The very fact that the exhibition is in existence means that other people are thinking about this and people have to always understand. I, I used to work in a museum uh, you know, I used to work in the Guggenheim Museum, and they had artwork that was very, let's say, out there. It was more modern art. 
um, might be candy on the floor or might be uh, steam pipes with uh, mercury in them. And people would always come up and say, where's the real art? Where's the real art at? And I have to say, oh, the Tannhauser Gallery is on the second floor. And uh, Tannhauser was someone who collected the art that gave the Guggenheim maybe their foundation. So they had Picasso's and Matisse and uh, they had Chagall. They had all, all kinds of images that most people recognize as real art. But what people have to understand about a museum, not only does it hold beautiful things, it often holds the first time a person was brave enough to try something, you know, to try something. It's, it's almost like it documents. So when I want people to look at this uh, image inside the museum, uh, the Climate Museum, I want them to know that it's a documentation of what people are doing now and that you're not alone. If you feel that things are out of balance, that it's so important to actually talk about these issues that there is a museum in New York on Wooster Street, and it has you know information for you, and more more than likely like-minded people. You know you could go in there, and I'm sure even the people that work there can answer questions. If you're in a position like I was, you know before I, I started as a project, not well versed in all the the technicalities of what uh, people are doing and what what the companies do and how the dynamics work. But there's a start there in the museum giving you information. So I really love that uh, it's a place of solace, but it's also within that solace, it's also a place for action, you know, a place for you to have a direction after you get the information, what to do. And, you know, my my artwork, again, I feel like it's it's um it's a summation of the whole show, but the relationship you see in that center section, which you could call the present, is what's going on now, in my opinion, in my judgment. I think you are planting seeds for a future where in the future you will have uh, more, you know, what what people were supposed to. You're, you're supposed to have human interaction. You're not supposed to be in, in protest and war and fighting. And it's it's like... You know, it's a hope for balance, but basically what we do today can help the people of the future and more specifically for me, the children of the future. I think you're, you're dealing with, you know, people that need to know, um, you know, that we did something because if they, 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 we get to a future where things are not where it could have been, it's, it's like we are the ones that have to answer for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the exhibit's title suggests that end to fossil fuels. So I think it's so important that um, your artwork kind of suggests those strategies and solutions um, found in active participation from the viewers that could help us transition away from our reliance on fossil fuels. You know, the idea that everyone looking at this exhibit um, has a role to play in the climate movement and in um and in this just and equitable transition towards a more climate-friendly future. Um, just yeah. to finish up, you know, we don't have much time left, but um, maybe you could both finish by um, summarizing for me, you know, 
given the urgency of the climate crisis, what are your hopes and expectations for the future of the climate justice movement? And how do you see artworks role in that movement kind of evolving as time goes on? Um, Miranda, you could start. Thanks, Ariel. What a great final question. I'll be super brief. There's a majority of US adults highly supportive of climate justice. We walk around thinking that we're outnumbered. We don't see the policies we want to see that, that, that would reflect our desires being um, enacted by officials for the most part. There are some key exceptions and activist gains in different state legislatures, including New York's. And there've been some gains on the federal level, but by and large, we don't see what we want to see happening on this front actually happening in the world. And there's a climate silence in our culture that's based in part on the fossil fuels, very long, decades long, uh, disinformation strategy, the sowing of doubt. Ariel, you mentioned this briefly and we don't have time to get all the way into it, but there's been a huge amount of disinformation and misinformation put out by the fossil fuel industry that helps contribute to the dynamic of self-censorship that's creating a silence about climate and a silence about climate justice across our public culture. My hope is that through the kind of encouragement and sense of connection that beautiful and brilliant art like Greg's can, can engender in people that we understand, we come to understand that not only are we not alone in fervently desiring a climate just future and in wanting to see that reflected in official policy, but that we're in a huge majority of people who are on that same page and that we start to speak out that, that your work, Ariel, also as a podcast hope helps break that climate silence that in our different ways as podcast hosts, as artists, through the work of the Climate Museum, in my case, everybody who's listening to this has a role, has a circle of trust and influence where they can share the good tidings that we are part of a supermajority for climate justice in the US. And that if we raise our voices together, we will achieve that future depicted in Greg's mural. So that is my hope. Yeah, what a beautiful response. What about you, Greg? I could just say that the information is even in the title of the murals piece. It's called Making Tomorrow. So it's about really taking action. And, and as I was saying previously, planting the seeds for tomorrow for what you, what you hope to see bloom and, and happen. And I, and I want people to, you know, as, as they take on issues and, and, and have their say in what they feel about climate justice and, and the environment. And I don't want them to see art as the enemy or, or something for the elites. I want them to think of taking it on as a way to have a symbol or a flag to fly under. Because if you look back historically, any movement was unified by a flag or symbols. Any corporation has a logo. Um, these visual things are in there. These elements are very powerful to unite people. 
and for good or bad, they they are the way we're wired. When when we have something that's uh, you know visually inspiring, sometimes it's, it it helps focus people towards a direction. So I encourage people that are into this uh, the movement of and 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 the passion of, of wanting to see a change to see art as something that can be an ally. And and I and I really hope that they. That more of this happens, that you have visual artists and fine artists collaborate with climate justice warriors and fighters and protesters, and that we we actually work together to influence people in in a way visually that that I think can be even more powerful than than throwing facts to figures and and, and uh, doom and gloom down their throat. Something that really makes them rethink. Because sometimes it doesn't hit you right away. Sometimes you look at an image, and as I was saying previously, it stays with you. And you go to sleep, and you wake up, and you think about that message means this to me. And and then you realize that it means something similar to other people, and you hold it dear. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is so inspiring. And the work that you both do um, is so active. You know, you're not just taking a passive look at the climate crisis and kind of um, doing something in the background. You know, you're both, you know, there on the front lines, reaching out to the public, engaging as many people as possible, you know, making your voices heard, even with these controversial, tough to talk about subjects. And, um, you know, I think it's adults like you that inspire my generation um, to, um, maintain hope and not to give up and to know that there are people um, who devote their lives to a climate just future and there are people like you Greg who are creating art that um, you know has the potential to change lives and who knows how many young kids are going to see your mural and it will spark something in them or plant that seed as you say and they're going to grow up and devote themselves um, like uh, Miranda has to um, making a difference and reaching out to the community. So um, thank you both for all the work that you do. And thank you so much for doing this podcast with me today. Thank, thank you. you. Remember that old saying I mentioned at the beginning, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, that applies to this podcast too. As fun as it was to take an audio journey to the Climate Museum in New York City, the End of Fossil Fuels exhibit is a visual attraction when it comes down to it. I encourage you to see Mr. Gregory Christie's mural and peruse the stories, facts, and graphics in the museum in person. Links to the museum info and address can be found in the show notes for this podcast episode. Thanks for listening to Changing Planet Justice.